You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. you a moment to do that. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30, and it's on page 858. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're now going to... I went to this wonderful, weird, weird and wonderful primary school when I was a kid in Diamond Creek, Diamond Creek Primary School, just a hundred or so kids uh, in this um, ancient little schoolhouse. And it was a state school, but it um, was kind of uh, run in a slightly different way. Like the, uh, the principal of the school just decided that he would write his own curriculum for some of the classes and that we wouldn't do what the government was telling us to do. So he had his own maths uh, curriculum, um, which is not the reason why I'm terrible at maths, I'm sure. That goes far deeper, it's in my genes. Um, But one thing that they chose to do, which I think probably should be made mandatory for all state schools, was we had a um, compulsory class every week for public speaking called Speech Club. And uh, uh, the name Speech Club makes it sound like something you opt into, but it was absolutely mandatory for everyone. And I thought it was great. It kind of forced us as little kids, I think it was for grade five and six, Um, to stand up and speak publicly. And one of the things I learned early on was one of kind of the the cardinal rules was that you never begin a speech with an apology because it sort of undermines your authority as the speaker. Um, But I'm just going to go ahead and disregard the cardinal rule this morning and apologise because um, I said last week that we were going to cover the next two sections of Jesus' sermon uh, verse 27 to 32, we were going to broach the delightful subjects of lust, adultery, and divorce. And uh, I even said that in the, the email that went out on Thursday. I thought we were going to do it until this morning um, when I figured actually there was way too much in that for us to try and do. And, and I'm slowly learning. I've only been doing this about 15 years. I'm slowly learning that sometimes you just, you know, less is more. And uh, that people don't appreciate listening to sermons for over an hour. So, We're going to stick to lust and adultery this morning. I also uh, need your help, and one of the reasons that I changed my mind this morning was because at 2 a.m. this morning, I woke up, which is not that unusual, um, but this time I woke up and stayed awake until now. So not a wink of sleep since 2 a.m. If you were here 10 years ago, you would have seen me just about every other week say something that could get me fired. I haven't done that for a while, but this morning might just be my opportunity, okay? So, um, 
So uh, remember that we're commanded to forgive one another, all right? Can we just, I'll pray for you, you pray for me. Let's do this. Father, please bless us now as we open your word. Your word is a light unto our feet. And so I pray that we would be mindful of that this morning, that you want to lead us out of darkness and into light, into life, into flourishing, abundant life. Please do it in Jesus' name. Amen. The bonus of taking longer than planned to go through this sermon is that I just get more of the privilege of teaching from Jesus' teaching. That's what we're doing during this series. We're taking a sermon that Jesus preached and we're just trying to learn from it as we work through it verse by verse. And so that's a great privilege for me because I love Jesus. I love that guy. I, like it, I know it sounds a little bit trite or, or banal or something, and you'd expect me to say it, but I just lo- I love him. And, and here's what I mean. I don't just love him because he died for me and he, and he forgives me. Um, he's my Lord and my Savior. I love him because of just who he is, who he was. Like when I read the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I just read them and think, I love this guy. I'm drawn to this guy. I'm attracted to this guy. I'm compelled by this guy. He's an amazing figure. The greatest figure in human history. Even if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you just see Jesus as, you know, someone who lived a couple of thousand years ago. He's an amazing guy. One of the things I love most about Jesus is that he, for me, just represents everything I want to be. Sometimes I just read the Gospels to remind myself what I want to be. It clarifies for me the kinds of goals I have for myself. I've said to you that one of the interpretive keys for understanding the Sermon on the Mount is to see it as an invitation to the good life. It's an invitation to us to the flourishing, abundant life. This is how to live in God's kingdom in a way that will bring flourishing, that will bring fulfillment to us as human beings made in God's image. And when we see Jesus, when you read him in these biographies, you see, for me at least, I see a picture of the ultimate human being, like the flourishing human being, the complete human being. That's who Jesus is as I read it. One of the things I love about him most is that he is both more tough and more tender than I will ever be. And I want to be both of those things. He's he's got this complete love for all kinds of people, even the people that everyone else hates, this complete love for them. And he speaks to them with absolute honesty. One of his good friends, John, this is how he describes Jesus in, in the first chapter of his biography of Jesus, he says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Each one of us here are a combination of grace and truth. Some of us are more gracious, accepting, um, open, and less able to tell people the truth and be honest. Others of us flip that script, right? We're all a combination. Jesus is full to the brim, 100% of both full of grace and truth. So you see, like in John's Gospel in chapter 8, when he has that amazing interaction with the woman caught in adultery, right? She's been caught committing adultery. She should therefore be stoned to death. She's dragged before Jesus as a kind of trap, 
to see what he's going to do with her. And he says those immortal words, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. Her accusers leave, ashamed. And he says to her, is there no one to condemn you? She says, no, sir. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Full of grace and truth, right? I don't condemn you. Now sin no more. Full of grace and truth. And I want us to remember this, like whenever you hear the teaching of Jesus, if you were listening as Joanna read that reading, you might have thought like you've just been punched in the guts. Jesus is more tough as well as more tender than any of us here. But I want you to remember, particularly as we come to today's message on lust and adultery, next week on divorce, Jesus is very direct on both counts. I need you to remember he is full of grace and truth. And every one of us here this morning needs to receive both the truth of his words and the grace of his redemption. All right? All right. So, you might remember last week I said this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount, they're kind of broken up into six sections, and it turns out rather than doing it in five, we're now going to do it in six and, and take just a week for each one. But these six sections that he addresses from verse 21 to 48, he takes teaching from the Old covenant, the Old Testament, the law, the Torah, he takes that teaching and he does uh, like a three-point little mini-sermon with each section. So he quote, so, so this is how it's broken up, right? Three parts. He does the Old Testament statement, here's what the, the Torah says, and then he gives an explanation of the true intent of that law. So he says, you heard it was said, but I say to you, but is not a correction or an antithesis, but is a true interpretation. When he says, but I say to you, he's saying, this has been disfigured by the religious leaders of this day. Let me tell you what it means. And here he is revealing himself to be God himself. God himself reveals God's word and the nature of God's, both his character and his law. And so Jesus, as God in human flesh, says, you have heard it was said, I say to you, an explanation of the true intent of the law, and then a practical application. Here's how you walk this out if you want to be my disciple. If you want to live in the kingdom of God that I am bringing to bear in my very person at this very time, in my earthly ministry, my death, my burial, my resurrection, my ruling and reigning over all things, from this point forward as I bring my kingdom to bear, if you want to be my disciple, living as a citizen of my kingdom, here's how you live. Here's what the flourishing life looks like. So we saw that last week with anger and um, name-calling. We're going to see it today with lust and adultery. So let's jump into it, beginning at the first point. Somebody pray for whoever needs that emergency service. The first point, the Old Testament statement, the statement from the Torah. 
Matthew 5:27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Again, we know that where this comes from, we don't have to search hard to find this in the Torah. You'll find it in Exodus chapter 20 where it says, one of the big ten, do not commit adultery. Jesus is not inventing some kind of new thing here. This is well-established truth, law written by God on stone tablets, do not commit adultery. And the basis for this law that God gave to his people, Exodus 20, do not, do not commit adultery, the law that Jesus reaffirms in this Sermon on the Mount, the basis of it goes all the way back to the heart of why God created men and women and gave them the gift of marriage. This goes all the way back to the genesis of creation. This is not something invented by Moses on a mountain and engraved in stone. This is something that goes back to the very heart of creation, the purpose for marriage. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, and we might take a look at this next week, the Pharisees, I think it's Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus, they're trying to trap him, they want to ask him about divorce because they know this is a very contentious issue of the day. There are liberal Pharisees who believe that you can just divorce anyone for anything, your wife burns you dinner, then you can send her away packing. Others, more conservative Pharisees, believe that you need to have a certificate of divorce and it's on certain grounds that that happens. So they come to Jesus, they try and trick him, and as part of his response to them, we won't go into all of this until this week, but in, in, uh, until next week, but in um, Matthew 19 and 4 to 6, he takes them back to Genesis in his response. He says to them, haven't you read? Of course they have. They've memorized it, right? These are Pharisees. They knew everything about the Torah. But he says, haven't you read that he cr- who created them, that's God, in the beginning, made them male and female And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The basis of this law that prohibits committing adultery, and let's just be clear, this means being married to someone and then going and having sexual intercourse with someone who you're not married to. Adultery sounds kind of domesticated. You need to think about what it really is, all right? So this is sexual intercourse outside of the marriage covenant. That person who commits adultery is breaking God's law and God's law is written not as some sort of arbitrary thing that God just felt like it one day. It's because it goes back to his, the heart of his intention for men and women in marriage, that they would be one flesh. One flesh. So that when we destroy that union through the act of adultery, we are destroying the artwork of God, what God has joined together. You're not just tearing up a certificate that you signed on the day that you got married, you're tearing up the artwork of God, the creation of God. And so this is a very similar point to last week. Remember, the the thing that united both murder and calling someone a fool was that they are both vandalism, 
They're both defacing someone made in God's image, either by ending their life or by telling them they're a moron. In both cases, you're taking something God has made in his image, made it beautiful, made it absolutely of incalculable worth, and you're defacing it. So it is with adultery. So it is with lust. When you lust after someone, you are taking something that God made beautiful in his image, and you are debasing it. You are objectifying it. So you're taking an image bearer of God and you're turning it into an object to be used. That's why lust is so destructive. When you commit adultery, you are taking something God has made, not only the people made in his image, but the union of marriage that he has, what he has joined together, what he has knit together, what he has created, you're taking that and tearing it up, debasing it, vandalizing it. Can you see the continuity? That's why these things are big issues for Jesus. You heard it was said, do not commit adultery. Now, point number two, he gives us an explanation of the true intent of that law. So let's read back to 27. Um, and 28. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, <clears throat> that's, that's hard to hear, right? Um, let me, let me come at this a couple of ways. First of all, let, let's, let's just be clear about what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying you cannot see a beautiful person and be attracted to them. He's not saying you cannot notice and appreciate a beautiful human being. Indeed, you were created to appreciate beautiful things in God's creation, whether it be a sunset, a mountain, a tree, a flower, or a person. God created beautiful things for our appreciation. In fact, he created beautiful things not only for our appreciation, but to be kind of a springboard into praise. You're meant to see a beautiful sunset, eat a delicious steak, drink a glass of wine or see a beautiful person and say, praise God. What an incredible artist he is. I know I've been uh, spruiking this book and I promise I don't get any royalties from the sales, but a lot of you have gone out and bought Every Moment Holy, which is this book of liturgies for every moment all of life. In fact, there are um, liturgies in here for what I just called sundry moments, Um, momentary liturgies for practicing the presence of God. And so the first one listed on page 249 it is, it says this, upon seeing a beautiful person. Here's a liturgy to pray upon seeing a beautiful person. Lord, I praise you for your divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. 
Now train my heart so that my response to their beauty would not be twisted downward into envy or desire, but would instead be directed upward in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of the world. Before the breaking of the world, God's design in making beautiful things which exist to this day was that they would be springboards, triggers, sparks for us to praise him. God, you make beautiful things. Where we go wrong is when we twist them down, either into envy or misdirected desire, when we turn them into objects to be used for our own gratification. The problem isn't noticing that someone is beautiful. I have a quote here from A.B. Bruce. He says, the look that Jesus is talking about here, the, the, the lusting look, the look is not casual but persistent. The desire not involuntary or momentary but cherished. The desire, the lust is something that I mm, chew on and, and enjoy and linger on and cherish it's not the fleeting glance i tried to put it into a little poem which i did after two hours sleep so forgive me if this is terrible but it's not the first glance but the lingering gaze that sparks the sin and feeds the flames of lust within it's not the first glance oh that's a beautiful person but the lingering gaze the objectification. What else is he not saying? He's also not saying, and I should have made this clear last week, I think, because it's a very common misinterpretation, but he's not saying that looking lustfully at someone is as bad as or even the same thing as committing adultery with someone. It's a misreading of this text. In the same way that calling someone a moron is not as bad as or even the same thing as murdering someone. We know that the repercussions for those actions are different, distinct. What Jesus is saying, the point that he's trying to make is the same point all throughout this sermon. You're going to get sick of hearing this probably by the end. But the point he's trying to make is that this is a heart issue. The... the the, the heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. He's going to keep bringing us back to this. This is not just about externalities. This is about the inner person, the real you. This is a heart issue. And whether it's murder or adultery, these things begin in the heart. They have their seed in the heart. That's why he says in the second part of verse 28, you have, what, is, what does he say? Let's get it right. I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. It's a heart issue. It's not enough to say, well, at least I never committed adultery. This is what we can do, right? If you're someone who hasn't committed adultery, and I'm not taking that for granted at this point, by the way, but if you're someone who has not committed adultery, it's easy to hear the words of Jesus and say, phew, dodge that bullet. Or to read those Ten Commandments and say, phew, dodge that bullet. And that's exactly the response that Jesus is trying to preach against. 
It's not enough to say I've never murdered anyone. It's not enough to say I've never committed adultery with anyone. My mind goes to Bill Clinton. What was it, 98, 99? I did not have sexual relations with that woman, right? Turns out he did, just not the kind of sexual relations he categorizes as sexual relations. He should have read on to the next couple of sections where Jesus talks about telling the truth, letting your yes be yes and your no, no. But this is, this is the kind of culture we live in. We can weasel our way around this if we just change the definitions, the categories, the social norms. I can evade the conviction that Jesus wants me to feel, but he wants us to feel it. Every single one of us in this room, he wants us to feel it. Because this is a matter of the heart, not just of externalities. Not just what I do with my hands, but what I do with my heart. Remember, guys, this is, this whole sermon is a rally cry to the disciples of Jesus, right? The citizens of the kingdom of God. He introduced it by saying, repent, the kingdom of God is here. And all through, this is a sermon, right? That's a a word of, what the Bible says, a word of exhortation. So he's exhorting you. He's hoping to convict you. He's hoping that your hearts would not be hardened, but open, soft, receptive to what he's saying. And what he's saying is this. If you're a Christian, then you're a citizen of the kingdom. And if you're a citizen of the kingdom, then you're called to a radical purity. A radical purity. The royal way, the way of the kingdom, is the way of radical purity. You can't just look around you and say, well, the social norms of my day are like this, and so I'm just you know, kind of living up to the expectations of the, the, the civilization I live within. The milieu that Jesus was speaking into, the, the Greco-Roman world of the first century, was arguably more sexually loose than ours is today. But his message was the same. Radical purity. How radical? How radical does the disciple of Jesus need to be in response to the the temptations to sin that he or she comes across throughout their lives? How radical do they need to be? Let's read the practical application. This is his third point. Verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. How radical? Yeah. That radical. Now, here's when it's good not to be a biblical literalist, okay? Don't be a biblical literalist because you're going to end up cutting all kinds of things off and gouging all kinds of things out. You might be like the great 
father of the church, I think it was Origen, who ended up castrating himself, probably in response to this verse, which doesn't change your heart, right? Jesus is being deliberately um, hyperbolous here, right? He's, he's, He's trying to make a point emphatically. What will you need to do in order to live this life of radical purity as a citizen of the kingdom of God? Well, you'll need to do all kinds of radical, rebellious, and costly things. Identifying the things that cause you to sin, these prevailing sins, the right response to that identification is to cut it off, gouge it out. The right hand and the right eye were seen as the most important of the two. He's he's trying to make the absolutely most emphatic point that he can. There is no sacred cow that should not be slaughtered in the pursuit of holiness in the kingdom of God. Be ruthless with temptation. Now, what are the things, what are these prevailing sins? What are these things that we come up against over and over and over again that we're prone to be gentle with rather than ruthless with? I was thinking about what are the things that you guys have come to me and talked to me about. I need help with this. I know Jesus is calling me to radical purity, but I'm having trouble with this, right? What are some of these things? I even noted them down. Didn't put your name next to them, okay? Pornography. Men and women. Pornography. Gossip. Men and women. We used to divide that into like the man's sin was porn and the woman's sin was gossip. It's nonsense. Pornography, gossip, greed, right? Those impulsive purchases, online shopping, buying things over and over again that you don't need, keeping money away from the poor. The early church probably would have identified that as the major sin of the church today, by the way. We don't get that because we're so addicted to consumerism. They would have said the greatest sin of the church in Caroline Springs is that they feed themselves and keep nothing for the poor. That's a whole other sermon. I, 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 that's been on my mind recently. Okay, pornography, gossip, greed, gluttony, gambling. I, all, I have almost given up watching my beloved Liverpool football club who won... Yes, they did win the FA Cup overnight. I've almost... Yes, and Gihan, it was against Chelsea. I've almost given up watching them because you cannot watch a game without being plastered with gambling ads. Sick of it. I've never gambled in my life, never placed a bet, and you know why? Because it would consume me. I'm the guy who will end up in the gutter with nothing to feed my kids with. I know it. That is an arm I have to cut off. Now, at this point, it hasn't really cost me anything because I never got into it in the first place. But which of these is your prevailing sin? Maybe it's all of them. I 
I think when we come to terms with this, right, you've got this prevailing sin. Maybe it's gossip. I'm just, I'm constantly hacking down people behind their backs. It makes me feel better about myself. People like to hear it as well. I get attention. I understand that I'm in my heart murdering them by defacing the image of God. I see that now. Jesus brought to that to my attention. What do I do? You got to, you, first of all, you've got to identify what is the root of that prevailing sin. Remember, this is a heart, every one of these is a heart issue. When it comes to alcoholism, how come I just can't stop at two beers? Why do I have to have ten? Where's the heart issue? This is not just about my genes. This is not just about the stress I feel at work or my marriage or whatever. This behavior is being driven from a, from, from a root that's down in my heart. I need, to, I need to unearth that. That's a work of the Spirit, and it normally, it normally is revealed in community. Don't trust yourself to self-diagnose, right? Don't Google this to try and figure it out. You need to be in community where people love you enough, are full of grace and truth, to tell you the truth and help you root out that sin. So here, I, uh, here's an example. Talk to a guy who's, uh, who's just compulsively looking at pornography. My response to him in trying to work this out is to say, what's the heart issue? There is a heart issue here. The root of this, you, you, we tend to look up on the surface there's a root that goes down deep into your heart. What is it? And we talked about this for a while. And this one young guy said, whenever I feel angry at God that I don't have a wife, I look at pornography and it makes me feel better. Right? It's medication. I'm angry at God and so therefore I have, um, I have enabled my sin because he owes me one or he hasn't given me a wife or whatever it is. So there's the heart issue. It's anger, it's disappointment with God, it's discontentment with what the, the life that he's given me. That is not an easy thing to cut off or gouge out. You'll need to do it, but it will take some time and wise counsel. So, let's just park that for a moment. I, the, my next question is, what are the surface issues? What's, what's triggering this? What's enabling this? What's the pathway to this sin that, that where the gate is wide open to you? Think about that for a little while. He said, well, uh, normally what happens is I lo- I'm looking at Instagram. And I'm not Instagram. I'm not Instagram. So I'm like, well, is there porn on Instagram? He's like, well, not technically, but there's lots of girls just like showing a lot of themselves. So I was like, well, there is pornography on Instagram then, right? Um, and uh, and if, the, if that's the trigger, then delete it. Like, don't delete the app, delete your account. He's like, well, this, I use it for work and, you know, I have a different, couple of different accounts. And it's how I stay in touch. What, is Je- what would Jesus say to that guy? Gouge it out. Oh, you have an Instagram account. Wow, that's so precious. No, your right eye, your right hand, Instagram account. This isn't me saying this. this is, I'm just the mailman, all right? This is Jesus. I'm, just, I'm the delivery guy. Don't be angry at me for telling you to delete Instagram, right? And maybe you don't need to. Maybe Instagram is just a 
platform for worshipping the Lord for you. Maybe it is. For, for others, it's like the highway to hell. Where's the root? And then what's enabling this? What's the trigger? What am I falling over? Where's, what's, where's the wide path that leads to destruction, as Jesus says later in this sermon? How do I shut that path down? What do I need to cut off? What do I need to gouge out? Tell me, Lord. Reveal to me, Lord. Tell me, small group. Reveal to me, small group. All of us, Gosh, I, 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 hate, I hate these sermons where I just feel like I'm ranting, but you, can I just remind you, this is, I'm doing this for me. I don't know who's going to turn up on Sunday. Sometimes we've got 100 people, sometimes there's 20. It doesn't bother me because I would still do this if it was me and Judah. I would still do this. I need this, all right? So if I'm, if I'm, if I'm yelling at you, just know that I'm sitting here going, oh boy, <laughs> yep. I need to hear this. All of us are going to face temptations, right? All of us. Whether you're five or 95, man, woman, black, white, this is the great leveler. All of us are going to struggle, and I hope you're struggling. You haven't just conceded. I hope you're struggling for righteousness, for radical purity, for the way of Jesus. I hope you're trying to follow in his footsteps even as you stumble. All of us are going to struggle with these prevailing sins. I love the way Martin Luther addressed this. He said, I can't stop the birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from building a nest in my hair. That's a great illustration. The birds are going to fly over your head. You can't stop it. It's part of being human. Temptations are going to come, as they did for Jesus himself. It's one of the reasons he can relate to us, sympathize with us, be gracious to us. You cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. It's funny, right? You can't sit there with a bird's nest in your hair and say, well, they just kept flying over. I just, I can, I can, nothing about it. We have great promises in Scripture that we can take a hold of when we're feeling either defeated by these prevailing sins or when we're in the midst of battling them. 1 Corinthians what is it, 13.10? No, 10.13. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. You are not a unique snowflake when it comes to temptations. That's a lie that Satan tells you, well, no one else is struggling like you. No one else has it as bad as you. Nonsense. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. 
There is always an opportunity for someone who is a temple of the Holy Spirit to even in that moment be convicted by the Spirit and to turn away from sin, gouge out the eye, cut off the hand, flee, flee to Jesus. In the, even in the midst of the temptation, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon the Master. Fix them upon the Lord who is calling you to radical holiness. Be like Chester. Chester. Full name Chesterton. Named after the great G.K. And... Uh, Chester was given to Renee and I as a wedding present from my family. We had no idea we were getting a dog, but we rolled with it. And he turned out to be one of the greatest blessings from God, a constant reminder of God's beautiful creation and provision. Ask Renee about the night where Chester saved the day when I was out of town and we could go on and on. Now Chester, one of the reasons he was such a good dog was because he was such a faithful dog. And one of the reasons he was such a faithful and obedient dog was because we trained him hard from the very beginning. From the day we got him, we just we gave him no quarter. It's not, well, it's cold tonight, so let's just let him on the bed. No, there's a red piece of tape across the floor at the door of our bedroom. If you cross it, you'll get a smack. Did a similar thing with our kids, obviously. <laughs> Should have done. He was drilled. One of the things we did to test him, to tempt him, was we would get him to sit and stay. Stay. And then we would put down some kind of delicious treat, like, ah. Oh, I don't know, bones, beef bones, little gristly bits on that he loved to chew. Put them down on the floor. Now he's got a choice. His master's told him to stay. There's beef bones. Here's what I learned about Chester. This would be the same with any dog. Whenever he focused on the thing that he really wanted then he would do this, right? He would be sitting, and then he'd do this. Right? And just crawl, crawl and crawl, to, and then eventually give up and grab the bones. But whenever he did this, whenever he fixed his eyes on his master, he could obey he could bear it. He wouldn't cave into temptation. Each day and every day and even in the midst and maybe most of all in the midst of that temptation, fix your eyes on your master. He will give you grace to resist temptation. He will give you grace to fulfill his calling to a flourishing, abundant life of radical purity. 
finish with this. It's the writer to Hebrews. This is his exhortation or hers. We don't know who wrote it, but this is what they said. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Every hindrance, not just the looking at pornography, but everything that ensnares you, every hindrance, everything that leads you along that path, everything associated with the sin that will kill you, that will condemn you. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on the master, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we need your help because we're all rebels. And each one of us is prone to wander, prone to leave our master. Please train us in obedience. Please make us the kind of community that can identify in one another these prevailing sins and root them out from their source. By your Holy Spirit, convict us. Show us Help us to be faithful friends to one another, full of grace and truth, that we might root out these prevailing sins and so cut off the fruit of actions that damage us and condemn us, that deface people made in your image, objectify others, these sins that result in the destruction, defacing of marriages, relationships, and people. Please help us, all of us, Lord, the ones standing, the first and foremost, all of us are desperately in need of all of your grace and all of your truth. Help us to be a community marked out not only by our love for you, but our radical commitment to holiness, to walking in your footsteps. As we do this, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just be a matter of gouging out and cutting off, but it would be a matter of celebrating flourishing, deliverance from addiction, Deliverance from self-harm. Deliverance from the worship of gods that are really demons. Deliver us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.